You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. On tackling this subject of noble love, I, I asked myself, what does it mean to receive or demonstrate noble love? And before we can even look at this aspect of nobility and what it means to have noble, let's define a a biblical view of love. You see, this is a word that's thrown around a lot in our culture and in our English language, and, and we might have difficulty coming to an agreement with how to even finish this opening sentence with a, a simple blank. Love is blank. How would you define love? You see, we can use that term in a, in a, in a variety of ways. For example, in my own life, I can say I love pecan pie. I'm not supposed to eat it, but I love it, okay? And, and I, I love pecan pie. I love the way my mom fixed it as I was growing up. I also could say I love my Purdue Boilermakers, that nationally ranked basketball team to watch this year, okay? And that's true. And those of you who have been around me all know I love Purdue. I also could say I love our ministry staff here at Southwest, and I love our elders and our leadership team. And that's, that's true as well. And then I also could say I love my wife. All four of those statements are true, and, and yet in each sentence that word love means something different based on the context of the way I say it. In the original language that this portion of the Bible was recorded, the, the, the Greek language that the New Testament was first written down in, there are multiple words used in the Greek to describe this one word that we say is love. In fact, what's truly fascinating is that in the, in the Greek language, if you, if you research and study the, the history of the time and how the Greek language was used in that culture, uh, a word for love that wasn't used that often, it was actually rarely used, is found throughout the Bible. In fact, to be exact, 320 times this one particular description of love is used in the New Testament. Some of you might know about this word. It's, it's the word agape. It's this word that describes noble love, which is uniquely Christian. And it was powerfully demonstrated and defined by the one that we follow, Jesus, the one that we celebrate his birth this time of year. The Bible defines this word in this way. In 1 John three sixteen. and by the way, the word love in this verse is the word agape. This is how we know what love is, agape love, noble love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, if you're familiar with the the life story of Jesus, then you know that especially toward the end of his time on earth, he faced 
some really difficult times. He came under trial. He came under false accusations. And he was even crucified. And although this word agape is clearly defined in Jesus' loving sacrifice of going to the cross. In fact, the word agape could just be defined as a self-sacrificing love. And yet we know that if you read the, the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, you find that that, that that love that Jesus demonstrated at the cross, it wasn't easy for Jesus to do. Yes, he was God in the flesh, and yet the Bible says he was also 100% human. So, you know, and that's hard to, for our minds to grasp. He's 100% human, he's 100% God, and yet it's true. In fact, before he goes to the cross, as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, not my will, but your will be done. You see, it wasn't easy for Jesus to go to the cross. He didn't feel like doing it, but he did it. Why? Because he had previously decided to fulfill this act of love. That's why he left heaven to come to earth. So we can see that in in a very definitive way that love is a decision. Love is a decision. Now maybe you've never thought of it that way. But that's really a biblical way to understand this word love. You see, love is not an emotion. I know there's an emotion that accompanies love, but love is more than that. It's not a feeling. It's, it's not simply to be equated with romantic love or passion. In fact, the Greeks had a different word for that. It's the word that we get our word erotic. It was eros, love. But you see, love in its most noble form is a decision. And we'll see this play out in a character of our focus this morning and how he lived out that noble love in an admirable way. We see this in the forgotten character of the Christmas story, a guy named Joseph. So let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which highlights the character of Joseph more than any of the other Gospel narratives. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're introduced to this guy in this description in Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now let's make some observations here of what we can make out about this introduction to Joseph, about this topic of noble love. One of the things that really struck me and stood out to me, and I think is quite noteworthy here, is that the Bible describes Joseph as a righteous man. Some of your translations might read a just man, and those two terms could be used interchangeably, righteous or just, that Joseph was a righteous man. Now, that's a description that's rarely used in the Bible to describe human beings. In fact, I can think of a passage in Romans 3 that says that no one is righteous, And so as I went back and read that story again, preparing for this message, I I asked myself, I wonder how many times that phrase 
a righteous man was used to describe an individual. So I did a search in the Bible for individuals that could be described as a righteous man, a just man, or a righteous person, or a just person. And what I discovered is that there were only six individuals in all the Bible that are described in that way. Joseph, the husband of Mary, was one of them. Jesus was one of the other six. Somebody asked me, emailed me last night, who's the other four? I'm going to leave that up for you to search, okay? But I found six. If you find more, let me know. But, but that tells me there's something special about this guy, Joseph, who was engaged or betrothed to Mary. Which, if you think about it, really isn't that surprising because God is not just going to choose anyone to be the adopted dad of his one and only son. Now, in the culture that Joseph and Mary lived, Joseph was most likely in his late teens or in his 20s, or some have suggested maybe even older than that. He was considerably older than Mary. That was kind of the the culture that day. And Mary could have been as young as 14 years of age. As I shared three weeks ago, this very well could have been an arranged marriage. As one commentator noted, ancient Mediterranean fathers arranged their daughters' marriages through a custom called betrothal. Betrothal was much more serious than our modern practice of engagement. It left the survivor of a man's death a widow. You see, even before the wedding, if if the man died, the woman would be considered a widow. If both partners lived, it could only be ended by divorce. When Joseph learns that Mary is expecting a baby that he knew he had not fathered, He was seeking to do the right or just decision regarding this matter. Now, if you you try to imagine yourself never hearing this story, try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How would you respond to this news that the woman that you're betrothed is expecting a baby? And you know that you've not been intimate with her, and so you know it's not your baby. How would you deal with that situation? Joseph was in quite a difficult predicament. You see, if he did nothing, then it would be assumed that he had fathered the child out of wedlock. I'm certain that people could do math back then, and people would be calculating And he would need to live the rest of his life with the presumed shame that Mary and he had sinned by committing premarital sex. If he sought to clear his name by seeking to prove the child was not his, then he would in essence be bringing a charge of adultery against Mary. Again, realize this idea of being betrothed carried deeper meanings to the people of that day than simply engagement today. And so, if he brought that charge against Mary, he would bring upon her public disgrace. And according to the law, uh, that could even result in Mary being put to death by stoning. 
So here we see Joseph illustrate our first observation of noble love. He seeks to make an upright decision. An upright decision, one that is keeping with being righteous. By planning to quietly divorce Mary, he's seeking to do the right thing and yet protect Mary's honor and her well-being. Now, in our Western 21st century minds, we might struggle to see the seriousness of this decision and the nobility of how Joseph sought to handle it. As one commentator noted, unlike today, Joseph had no option of giving Mary a second chance, even if he wanted to. Jewish and Roman law both demanded that a man divorce his wife if she were guilty of adultery. Roman law actually treated a husband who failed to divorce an unfaithful wife as a panderer exploiting his wife as a prostitute. You see, the predicament Joseph in was intense. Now, Joseph's upright decision stands as a shining example in his time period and especially, I believe, in ours. You see, in his culture, the purity of an engaged or betrothed couple was guarded closely. And according to my research, Galilean couples apparently enjoyed no privacy together until the wedding. And although they were engaged from our perspective in the Jewish mindset, they were already committed to marriage, and yet they were to abstain from sexual intimacy until the wedding. Joseph's righteousness and upright decision is to be highly praised in our culture. It was highly to be praised in that culture, and, and I believe it stands as, a, as an example in every generation. You see, in our culture today, we live in a climate of sexual permissiveness that's not in keeping with the standards of the Bible. And unfortunately, we live in a time that, that unfortunately, the practice of sexual harassment and sexual coercion has been tolerated for far too long. I have to just be honest with you. Maybe some of you can relate. It's, it's been difficult for me recently to watch and read the daily news. As we hear of one case after another of men who have behaved in an immoral and shameful way toward women that they work with. Honestly, from being a guy and knowing guys and counseling guys for decades, I've not been shocked with these news reports, and yet I have been appalled. And I believe that this Christmas season, Joseph is a shining example and an upward call to to all men to treat women around them with dignity, honor, and respect, to truly behave in a righteous manner, and to make upright decisions regarding, guys, I'm speaking to you, and regarding to your interactions with your wife, with friends of the opposite sex, and with those that you work around. As many of you know, I've had a policy for years that I will not meet alone with a woman without my wife present or some other person who will be a witness that I've handled myself in an upright manner. 
Now, you might call me old-fashioned, and some have, and some have even been offended by that policy. But you see, I am determined to never bring shame upon my wife or upon this church that I love. And I call all men in the crowd today to seriously consider adopting this policy in your life as well. Because it seems from our news that we hear on a daily, if not weekly basis, that, that this kind of approach and upright decisions are far too rare in our culture. And that we need more men to rise up that will treat women around them with honor and with dignity. Joseph is an example for the ages of what it means to be a righteous man who makes upright decisions. Now, let's keep reading in verse 20. We find more about Joseph. As he considered this, he's, he's contemplating this decision. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name, are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I love this section of Scripture. As we see that although Jesus had an earthly mother, earthly mother he was the Son of God, and he had no earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And although I don't really understand how this happened, I do believe that it's true. And I try, I've tried through the years to comprehend how did God do that? How did God, through His Spirit, conceive this baby inside of Mary's womb, even though she was a virgin? And I just have to confess, the more I try to figure it out, the, the more I'm at a loss. And I find myself, kind of like Andrew described a couple weeks ago, just being an awestruck wonder of God's power and God's plan as he, as he played out this, this story of bringing his son to the earth. And yet I think there's something else interesting for us to note in this, this reading, verses 20 and 21. That when Joseph was called by God to name Jesus, in a real sense, Joseph is being called by God to become the adopted father of Jesus and to raise him as his own. Now, as we continue to read in scriptures, we, we, we see that, that throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, that, that Joseph is described as the father of Jesus. In fact, reading for this, preparing for this message, I just researched and read all the Bible passages I could find about Joseph, uh, the adopted father of, of Jesus. And, and it's interesting, and maybe some of you have wondered about this, the last time that he's mentioned in the, in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is about 12 years old. He's in the temple. Some of you might remember that story. And, and they go to the temple to worship, and then Jesus st- stays in the temple talking to the leaders, and, and his parents with a group of people start heading back up to Nazareth. And then they realize that Jesus is not with them. They go back. It's a three-day lapse of time, and, and Jesus is there talking. That's the last mention in the Bible of Joseph the husband of Mary. 
Most scholars believe that by the time Jesus started his ministry at the age of around 30, that Joseph had already died because he's never mentioned again, except for that sometimes Jesus will be described, isn't he the son of the carpenter? Isn't he his mother Mary and his father Joseph? That tells me that Joseph did a good job of of being that adopted dad. So much so that people just assumed he was the dad. We see that Joseph illustrates the second aspect of noble love by demonstrating unconditional devotion. Unconditional devotion. In my research of this aspect of noble love, I, I found that the word devotion comes from the Latin word. I won't even try to pronounce it because I'll butcher it. I butcher English words, so I know I'd butcher this one. But it means to promise. Our word devotion correlates to the word vote. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but to be devoted, in a sense, you're voting, which is the, in the Latin carries this meaning of vow, wish, or promise. One theologian writing on this subject made these observations. I found this reading, and I I thought, this is great. I tried to put it in my own words, and I couldn't do it as well as he did, so I thought, I'm just going to read it to you, okay? This is what this theologian wrote. He said, devotion is to devote yourself to someone, is to promise yourself to give your support to that person. In the same way, to love somebody is a promise you make that you will support that person unconditionally. This does not mean that you will endorse the errors of that person, but it means that you will love him or her even when his or her decisions and actions are wrong. It means you will not abandon that person as many do when they make mistakes. If God would abandon us because of our mistakes, no one could count on God's love because we all err. Love is devotion, commitment, continuing supporting despite the flaws, mistakes of our loved ones. That is why the Apostle Paul said love never ceases because love stops at nothing. Sure, our first and paramount devotion is to God, but if you love God, you might already know that the best way to show our love to God is by your commitment to love every human being. I thought that was a great explanation of this idea of devotion. This is what we see in Joseph, the husband of Mary. This is the devotion that I call young engaged couples to make toward each other prior to them ever standing up in front of family and friends when they say, I do. You see, I call them to make that commitment that they will be devoted for life. This is the kind of devotion that I've experienced for my wife of 34 years. And I'm so grateful for her devotion to to me. And I am devoted to her. Throughout this series, I've I've been asking people, you know, the the title of this series is All I Want for Christmas. And I've asked a number of people, what's what's your favorite Christmas present you ever received? I've shared with some as I asked them what their favorite Christmas present, I shared one of my favorite Christmas presents <clears throat> was when I was 10 years old. I, I, I got a bicycle. 
And uh, I love that bicycle. It was cool. It was Stingray with banana seat. And if you don't know what that means, but it was cool. I loved it so much, it's still in my basement today. My wife just doesn't get it, okay? Like I said, she's devoted to me, okay? But another Christmas present that meant a great deal to me was given to me by Jane 35 years ago. You see, 35 years ago this Christmas, Jane and I were a young, engaged couple who are awaiting our upcoming wedding that coming summer. I had become impressed by the unconditional devotion that my fiancé at that time demonstrated for me. Now, the first, the, the fact that she was willing to say, yes, she would marry me in July of that year amazed me. Because you see, if you know me and if you know Jane, you know that I married up, okay? I mean, there's just no question about it. You see... Jane grew up in a white-collar family. I grew up in a blue-collar family. Jane was completing her professional degree in the medical field, and, and I was working as a campus minister for a startup church in Louisville, Kentucky, that they couldn't afford to pay me, and I'd raised some support, and they had provided, furnished me an apartment in the back of a halfway house. It was pretty simple living. Jane was used to driving newer cars as she was growing up, and I was driving while we were dating a 15-year-old turquoise and white Mercury Monterey. And I have to tell you, now, first of all, when you think of a turquoise car, I mean, there's just, it's hard to think of an attractive turquoise car. I mean, now, maybe if you have one, please accept my apology, but... But this one was not attractive, okay? Every door had been hit, and so they'd been repainted, and none of the, it's hard to match turquoise paint, and none of the doors matched. But I thought it was a cool car, and I loved driving it. And um, only later did Jane realize, uh, reveal to me that she was embarrassed to be seen in that car. I was curious why her dad made arrangements for me to get another used car right before we got married. That seemed out of the blue, but now I get it. But on that Christmas 35 years ago, while Jane was wrapping up a hectic senior year in college, she made for me a most memorable gift, one that touched my heart. She'd taken a piece of wood and she'd taken a piece of parchment and she'd handwritten in calligraphy the words of my favorite song at that time. It was the words, maybe some of you know, the the words of the song Impossible Dream from the movie Man of La Mancha. She knew she was marrying a dreamer, didn't have any money, and so she, she, she leaned in, and I'm grateful for it. And after writing the words on calligraphy, she glued it to the wood, and then she sanded it and varnished it, and she gave it to me as that Christmas present that year, and it moved my heart to think of how much time that took for her to make that. You see, I was impressed by her devotion. Well, Joseph shows an amazing, unconditional devotion toward Mary and toward her baby son, Jesus. And as we keep reading in verse 24, we read these words, 
When Joseph woke up from this dream where he'd received, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he, he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Here we see the last characteristic of noble love we want to mention today. We see in Joseph unlimited dedication. Now, some of you maybe thought devotion and dedication are synonymous, but but as one author pointed out, devotion has to do with promise and and dedication or vow. Dedication is the follow-up. It's the action and behavior that accompanies devotion. I'm grateful that Jane only made a vow or pledge of love to me 35 years ago, but I'm grateful of how she's lived that out in dedication over and over again. In Joseph, we see a guy who gets up from this dream and is obedient to the vision that he's received from the Lord. He followed through. He took Mary as his wife. And what is so impressive to me is that even though married, he did not have sexual relations with her until Jesus was born. And he followed through with naming him and, in a sense, adopting him as his own, even though he knew that Jesus was not his biological son. As one scholar commented on just the dedication that this couple demonstrated, and specifically Joseph, he said this would have taken considerable self-control. In many Middle Eastern societies, observers simply assumed that if a man and woman were alone together for more than 20 minutes, they had had sexual intimacy. The self-control of this young couple challenges those today who doubt their ability to control their passions. You see, this is unlimited dedication. This is a love that's truly noble. It's a love that isn't looking for something in return. This is a love that lives out its devotion and vow and pledge. A love that doesn't put limits on how far it'll go to follow through on the pledge or promise or vow that was earlier made. I want to just speak honestly to those of you who are married. Are you following through? with the wedding vows that you made earlier in life? Are you dedicated to living that out in every way? For those of you who are single, are you simply looking for someone who will meet your needs in life, or are you looking for someone that you can meet their needs? This Christmas season, let's examine our love for God and our love for others. Are we practicing noble love? Are we making the daily decisions to love others, not as they deserve, but as we would like ourselves to be treated by others? Are you daily making the decision to do that which is right toward others? Are you unconditional in your devotion to others? Do you simply make promises and pledges or are you following through with an unlimited dedication to your spouse, your family members, and your friends? Although Joseph is a great example, and I hope you've been drawn into his story today, 
But our ultimate example of noble love is the one that Joseph adopted and the one that Matthew described in those verses you thought I skipped, but we're going to go back and read it. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. You see, Jesus is the greatest example of making the tough, upright decision to leave heaven, to come to earth so that he could die for us on the cross. One pastor and author named Rick Ashley that I follow on Twitter put it this way this past week. He, talking about Jesus, he left his place to come to our place so he could take our place. What a Savior. What a Savior. Jesus also demonstrated unconditional devotion to die for people like you and me. And he followed through with his unlimited dedication by stretching out his hands and dying for us on the cross. During our time of communion today, let's focus on the noble love of Jesus Christ. As we observe a time of communion where we take a piece of bread... And we're reminded of Jesus' body as we take the cup and we're reminded of his blood. Let's realize that he is the greatest example of noble love. And let's ask ourselves, as the Bible tells us to during times of communion, to examine our own hearts. How are we responding to that noble love? Have we received it? And are we living it out in our relationships with others. Let's allow this to be a time where we soak up the noble love of our Savior. And let this be a time that, that catapults in, us into a week, into a season, into a coming year, that we live out what it means to love people in a noble way. Let's pray together. Dear God, we... Uh, We're in wonder, we're in awe of you and your plan. We're amazed of the love that you've shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. We're amazed of how he came to this earth and how all the characters in this story, how they interacted and the faith they demonstrated. And today we're impressed with Joseph's noble love. And yet, Father, At this time of communion, we just want to reflect on how much Jesus loves each and every one of us. Help us soak up that love right now. And help us truly do some self-examination to ask ourselves, are we living a life of love? Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings. Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.